0: You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one marketing podcast uh, for all things marketing, advertising, and communications. I'm your host, Ted Lau part-time podcaster, full-time agency owner, full-time dad, full-time space and science fan. And I'm really, really interested in our call today with the one and only Chris Hadfield, referred to as, some say, Chris is the most famous astronaut since Neil Armstrong. I believe Chris is actually this generation's Neil Armstrong. Colonel Chris Hadfield became a household name as the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station on Expedition 35 for almost two months. A heavily decorated astronaut, engineer, and pilot, Hadfield's many awards include the Order of Canada, the Meritorious Service Cross, and the NASA Exceptional Service Medal. Hadfield is also a best-selling author of three books, an acclaimed musician, and the host of two internationally acclaimed television series, including National Geographic's one strange rock. Welcome, Chris.
1: Hey, welcome, Ted. That's a whole mouthful to get through, especially meritorious. I've I won the Meritorious Service Cross twice, in fact. So, so that wow, you had to say it twice.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, I uh, I've been a fan following you a lot, and and our daughter actually is was super excited that I got to interview you today because you actually probably don't know this, you you actually skyped her class last year when she was in or two years ago in in her grade four class. And uh, she was very, very excited about it. And I have a a question from her later on that I'm going to ask you. But in the meantime, I mean, welcome. What have you been doing? Like you've you've retired for some time, but clearly you're not retired. You're you're somebody that's out and about doing a lot of stuff. And so tell me about what's going on.
1: Sure, I worked for the Air Force for 25 years and all told for the federal government for 35 years. But I left federal employment and became a private citizen back in 2013, so eight years ago. And since then, I mean, you know, I served the country and was a fighter pilot and and then a a military test pilot and then an astronaut. But since then, uh, I've been doing a lot of different things. I teach at the University of Waterloo. You mentioned books, I've written several books. I speak all over the world. All sorts of people are interested in how it is that we succeed in doing the high demand, high risk things that we do in space. But also during a pandemic, how do you thrive in isolated, dangerous, extended conditions? And so I speak and consult. And then I work with a lot of different space companies. I'm an advisor to SpaceX and to Virgin Galactic. And I chair the board of uh, of a space foundation that's looking at... um, What should the laws be as we start to settle on the moon? You know, what are property rights and the Open Lunar Foundation? And I run a technology incubator called Creative Destruction Lab that's looking to develop technologies that have application to really explode into huge profit and primarily space technologies. And I play a fair bit of music. I co-write with a lot of different people. Uh, Back when we were touring before the pandemic, I was Mm -hmm. touring with David Bowie's band, to play with those guys, which is great, a lot of fun. And I've written a new book uh, during the pandemic, which has kept me busy. But when I spoke to your daughter in her class, I've done a thing when Skype was invented, I thought, wow, what a great new way to just easily communicate with a group of people. I don't have to travel all the way to British Columbia and go to a classroom. I could just, while I'm eating my lunch, I could just push a few buttons on my computer and I could tie into a classroom. And so as soon as Skype was invented, I went, hey, let's call this, do it over lunch. You know, while I'm eating my peanut butter sandwich, let's call this on the lunch pad. And I've been doing on the lunch pad since Skype was invented. And I think it's really worthwhile because it takes me like 31 minutes to spend 30 minutes with a group of kids. And so I've done that in hundreds and hundreds of schools. So a lot of different projects. Oh, I'm working on a COVID detection company. And then a uh, long-term climate change sort of amelioration company, one of the technologies there. And then I'm an advisor to um, the XPRIZE Foundation as well. We're working on, on some interesting new technologies together. So yeah, lots of stuff keeping me busy. It's just a different form of retirement, I think. I don't
0: think that's retirement at all. I mean, that you just listed like 10 careers all in one hmm. in one breath there after just the most amazing career in space, so I mean, <laughs> I guess you just can't sit still. Or, or what's going on? Like, wh- why well, are you doing?
1: all well, of- Everybody's doing something, right? And I, I like to really stay mentally challenged. I, I like to learn things. I like to try and see if I can do stuff that I've never done before. And plus, I've been incredibly privileged. You know, the stuff I've gotten to do during my life, to, to be the first and only Canadian ever command a spaceship and to be Canada's first spacewalker, you know, that's on our $5 bill. What do you do when you have experiences like that in your life? You know, to me, it would just be a shame to just keep them to myself. It would be like all that time and trust invested in me. I feel like I would have squandered it if I wasn't doing my best to share it through all the media that's available now. So I stay active on social media and engage with people all the time and talk about the cool stuff that's happening. And it, it, you know, it's it's fun and interesting for me. And and I'm a lousy golfer, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know, and I you know I, I don't want to do nothing. To me, that's that's not retirement, that's that's just you know, stasis and the end of life. So so no, I I, I try and stay busy and engaged and productive. And I want to look back at every single day and feel like, hey, I learned some cool things today and I got some interesting stuff done and I met some interesting people. And I'm even better equipped to uh, to maybe deal with the stuff that's coming down the pike tomorrow. to me, that that's a day well, you know well experienced. And that's what I try and do every single day if I can. That's awesome. So I gotta say, I was
0: extremely nervous to to be on this interview just meeting an ash international hero like yourself. And I've tried to figure out what kind of question would I ask, Chris. And I thought, you know what? You probably get asked a lot of questions all the time on repeat. So I'm going to ask you, is there a question that you rarely get asked or I've never really been asked and you thought, man, I wish someone would ask me this question so I
1: could answer this? I don't think so. You know, I've been an astronaut and a public figure for almost 30 years. And I've spoken, you know, from preschool right through to uh you know, people in their 90s, and uh, you know, I work with hundreds of businesses, and and so I, I think you know, it's just conversation. And I'm, there's no question that I'm burning to you know, wait for someone to ask me. To me, the best question is always question of genuine curiosity. You know, what don't you know about that that you'd like? You know, if I was talking to Michelangelo, I, I would just. Man, tell me what it was like lying on your back in the Sistine Chapel. And how did you, you know, which brush did you choose when you were going to paint, you know, the hands, the fingers of, of you know, God giving life and, and you know, how did you choose those colors and, and how did you even mix paint while you were lying on your back on top of a scaffold? And what did you do for lighting? How did your candles not mess up, you know, that it, it would be just lovely to talk to someone with genuine, curious questions about how they had done something that, that I, I just could never do. And so for me, any question where someone is genuinely interested, doesn't matter if I've answered it before. If they're yeah. curious about the answer, then, you know, that's the whole point of questions. And, and so I, I'm happy to answer any, anything you or your, your family are, are curious about. Well, I wanted to, I, I was reading your book, And while
0: on the periphery, I understood, you know, space and Canadian space agency, and all that kind of stuff. I was not aware that when you were a kid, that it was actually impossible for a Canadian to become an astronaut, yet you still pursued this dream that didn't really exist. And so my question more was, was why? Like you've answered it a couple of times in the book, but I really wanted to hear from, from your words from the man Sure. How did you wake up every day knowing there's probably a very, very, very slim chance I'm going to get to space not once, not twice, but three times and then command the ISS? Like,
1: How, does that, how, do, you, how do you do it? Well, when, when I was that little kid growing up in Canada, obviously there was no space station. Uh, the whole thrust of it was the race between the United States and the Soviet Union to try and put the first human being on the moon. And that was what was all the news and all the roar when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. But Star Trek was on TV. In 2001, a space odyssey movie was in the movie theaters. And so you could sort of see a, a fanciful future. But there was real stuff happening, you know. People were actually flying in space. And, and on July 20th, 69, just before I turned 10, two guys walked on the moon. And so I looked at that and I said, you know what, 10 years ago, Nobody had ever flown in space. Yuri Gagarin was the spring of 61. And here we are in 69 walking on the moon, you know. So it used to be impossible for them not very long ago. I mean, spaceflight's younger than I am. When I was born, nobody (laughs) anywhere had ever flown in space. Space Spaceflight's still new. So I just thought, you know, the only thing I can really count on is that things are going to change. And the only thing that I can really control is myself. So how about if I just start changing who I am, gaining some skills, you know, trying to turn myself into the person that I dream of? I think it's like, you know, anybody with fanciful, like how does anybody become an Olympic athlete and get a gold medal when you're a nine year old kid? That's just crazy, right? There's no way you don't have any other skills yet. Maybe you got some talent, but that's not what they give out medals for. So I just did, I think, what a lot of people do. And that is I kept carefully choosing what to do next because that's that's really what determines who you are in life. It's not what you set out to do or what you told everybody you were going to do or which club you joined or, you know, which shoes you bought. What actually determines your life is all the little successions of the things that you chose to do next. And if you give yourself a long-term goal, then I think it makes it easier to choose what to do next. If you don't know where you're headed, how do you ever choose what to do next? You know, apart from just stimulate your nerve endings, which is kind of, circular and normally doesn't go anywhere. So I just always kept it in mind and never counted on it and loved every step of the way. I got to do so many different things. And, you know, astronauts dive in a pool to learn how to spacewalk. Cool. I'm going to be a scuba diver. Studied it, learned to be a scuba diver. had some great scuba diving experiences and got a little bit closer to being an astronaut. It's why I joined the Air Force. It's why I went to four different universities. It's, you know, it's why I still think about what I eat and why I exercise And it just built a pattern of my life. And amazingly enough, we had got a space agency in Canada and they recruited astronauts and they picked me. And then I served 21 years as an astronaut and flew in space three times and was the pilot of a Russian rocket ship and commanded the International Space Station. So, yeah, it's amazing when dreams come true. And I think the tenacity, sort of the optimistic tenacity is what it really took and and a lot of luck of timing and, and a lot of work. But wow, what a lot of
0: fun. Well, and a a lot of patience, too. I'm reading your book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, right now. And I'm not done yet, but there was um, basically a chapter that basically just talks about patience, right? Like, you're doing this for years, you're training, and then, oh, the flight rules say you got to turn back or you're not going to go up there today. And you said that a lot of being an astronaut... Is the time on Earth not actually the time in space, and I just found that incredibly, well, inspiring. And I would think in my, I'd be like, wow, I'd be so frustrated. Years, I'm just sitting here, and like, obviously, you're not just sitting there. But to develop that patience, was that something that was ingrained in you growing up on the farm,
1: or was it just something developed over time? Yeah, to so Imagine if you knew that you were going to do three podcasts over the next 21 years. That's sort of what it was like, but there's no guarantee you're going to do them, but you're preparing for a potential of doing three podcasts in 21 years. So you got seven years to prepare for each podcast, you know, Think how deep your research would be and how prepared you would be, and how you'd simulate for it, and how you'd try and take advantage of the latest technology. And you'd do all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't do otherwise. And you'd discover a lot of things along the way, and you'd be a lot better podcaster just because of the huge amount of work that you'd done and the study that you'd made of it. But the actual podcasts themselves would almost become incidental in your life then because, and the same with a space flight. I served 21 years as an astronaut. I was in space for six months. So 20 and a half years of study and training and preparation and, you know, learning to speak Russian and then learning to fly a spaceship in Russian. And, but I just love the whole process, you know, the chance to do all these things. And maybe at the end of it, I'd get to fly in space if, you know, if my cards lined up. So pretty good carrot at the end of all that. But I really think, It takes a tenacity of patience in order for good things. Sometimes you win a lottery, but you can never count on it, right? And most people don't. You need a tenacity of patience with your own dreams. And then you also need a really low bar of celebration. You can't wait (laughs) until, you know, when I get through that space flight, finally I'll, you know, celebrate or I'll feel vindicated. You better find a way to love every single day. You know, along the path. Find the things that were really cool today, the stuff that made you laugh or smile or or that you didn't know, and celebrate as often as you can. Because if you wait until the final day of something to notice what a good time you had, then you will have missed some significant portion of your own life. And I think that's a mistake. And it's something I don't know if I learned it on the farm. I learned how to work, you know, growing up on a farm. I learned that there's joy in accomplished work and a sense of worth. But the tenacity of patience, I think it's just something I sort of figured out and stuck with, and you know see where the future leads and and so far <laughs> put a pretty interesting path well, so that's where I also found that while your tips
0: were like stuff like sweat the small stuff and negative thinking instead of positive thinking, which was quite refreshing, given all the self help stuff that that's out there. You're, you're very optimistic. You, you're, you seem like a very positive guy. Like you talk about celebrating all the stuff that you do, all the accomplishments, the little things along the way. I've read and heard about athletes that won the Super Bowl or won the Stanley Cup. And afterwards, they've accomplished this. And then they fall into this kind of a depression because I've done it. I've done this life goal. And, and now what? Yet here you are, you know, like I said, doing 10 careers in one go right now. And doing these things, how did like was is that a mindset? Is that something where you just like, oh, I'm down now, on to the next, you know? Like, well,
1: I I think obviously all of that is psychological, right? I think I recognized early on that that it's not going to go as you plan, and that with a stroke of bad luck, all of your plans could and will get derailed. So you better have a backup plan. You know what does an Olympic athlete do when, I don't know, when they have an injury or they get appendicitis or, or, you know, or whatever. As a pilot, all it takes is one tiny little shard of something getting in your eye and you're not a pilot anymore or even losing one important digit. You know, we got 10, so we got spares, but there's some that you need to operate machinery. And so I recognized early on that none of this is guaranteed and none of it lasts forever. And so I better have some backup plans and they better be backup plans that I like. And every time I ever flew as a military pilot, you know, a fighter pilot, and then a test pilot, I recognized there are going to be many days in my life where some young airman isn't getting an airplane perfectly ready for me, full of gas and giving it to me to go out and do what I need to do, you know, and saluting me and then me bringing it back, having, you know, tested the airplane or intercepted Soviet bombers during the Cold War or whatever. I knew that I better really relish every single one of those flights because that's a rare responsibility, but also a rare privilege. And there's always other new stuff. I mean, the amount of opportunity that exists right now is unprecedented in human history. The level of education, the level of healthcare, the ability to travel obviously, we got to get through the pandemic, the ability to communicate like you and I are now effortlessly that has opened up so much opportunity. And there's so many fields I know very little about. You know, I only speak three languages. There are hundreds of languages out there. You know, there's just an unlimited number of things to dig into. And the only thing that's stopping you from doing it is is yourself. So I just, uh, I stay very, not just curious, but kind of committed to answer my own curiosity and to increase my own capabilities over time and to me it it just life gets richer and more interesting with the more things that you've done and the more things you understand and know and so it's just how i conduct my life all the time and there are good examples you know my my dad's 87 and he his body's having troubles with arthritis but he still flies his two airplanes and you know works in the garage for 7 or 8 hours a day my mom probably reads a book a day at 85 years old and and why wouldn't you you know so i there've been good examples to me but i think the real factor in this is don't define yourself in your life by one thing. You know, one of the great science fiction writers said specialization is for insects. We're people. We can do multiple things and we live a long time. So don't get all hung up being just a a monolith in your own life. And don't spend all your time wishing it was some time in the past. You know, you'll bump into the future if you're looking backwards. So, you know, look forwards and just use the past as a platform that you're standing on." To me, it just makes for an interesting, a more interesting life. That's great. Super inspirational.
2: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more,
3: according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
0: All right, let's talk about your new book, Apollo Murders. When's it come out? What is it? How'd you come up
1: with it? The idea? It's pretty cool because there is one version of the book in the world right now, and it's in my hand, the Apollo murders. It's That's so cool nice. to see, you know, this little lunar lander coming down to land on the moon. And every single word in here is uh, is a word that that I chose. So it's a pretty big thing because I've written, this is my fourth book, but it's my first fiction And Mm -hmm. it's not fiction. It's thriller. It's like high stakes thriller. It's like, you know, hunt for red October or, or Sherlock Holmes or something. It's a, it's a mystery, murder mystery. And I was thinking about, as you mentioned, you know, as we were talking earlier, how do you, how do you stay motivated? How do you share these experiences? How do you sort of market your own life? Like, how do you let other people in on your own life? And I've tried all sorts of things. You know, I hosted that National Geographic series with Will Smith and I played music on the space station and I've, you know, done all sorts of things. But I thought rather than just writing a factual book, like the one that you've been reading, Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, wouldn't it be interesting, just like when I used to watch Star Trek as a kid, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try and take all the stuff that I've learned and the stuff I've done and the stuff I know about spaceflight and weave it into an action thriller and set it at a time where I can use real people in the story. So I set it in 1973, right at the end of the space race to the moon and the height of the Cold War, during the end of the Nixon administration with Watergate, the end of the Vietnam War, the real rise of women's rights, all of that mayhem, the great unrest in the United States at the time. And then at that time, the Soviets had a spy space station with people on it that was armed, that had a big machine gun on the outside of it. And the Soviets had put a, a rover on the moon that that mysteriously malfunctioned in the spring of 1973. And so it gave me a really interesting framework to create a few characters and then weave a whole story of what just might have been. And I'm really delighted with the reaction to it. James Patterson, one of the most famous mystery authors ever, just a couple days ago, this is one of the two books that he mentioned that he's been reading and that he really loves this year. And, you know, all sorts of people are, are light the book, liking the book. And there's all sorts of movie companies have contacted us already that want to turn it into a film. So, so it's, you know, it's a big leap for me. I've never written a fiction novel before, but I worked on it for a whole year and uh, get up early in the morning, do a little exercise and then write from about seven or eight in the morning until, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, seven days a week for, for a year and then edit like crazy and work with a team to trim the book down. But I'm really, really proud of it. And I think people are gonna have a lot of fun reading it. They're gonna learn about space stuff. They're gonna be intrigued. Over half the characters are real people. I think sort of almost unconsciously, people will get a real sense of what it's like on a spaceship, to look through the window, to travel through the darkness, to see the world, to do a spacewalk, to launch on a rocket, to come down in a capsule through the atmosphere. I've done all those things. And so it was a lot of fun to work them into a story. As you say, it's in pre-order now, but uh, it comes out October 12th. I think you're going to enjoy reading the book. And uh, I'm really happy with, with how it's coming along to this point, the Apollo murders. I'm super
0: excited it's the day after my daughter's birthday. So maybe I'll, Oh, cool. I'll get a copy and we'll, can I read it to
1: a preteen or, do you, or is it too scary or like, what do you well, think? It's, it's not. Yeah. Preteen probably. Yeah. I think you'll find the first chapter is um, pretty gripping and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's lots of stuff happens in there. Um, one of my main protagonists in it is just a rip snorter of a woman that I think you'll like a real, you know, badass kind of person. So I think there's interesting characters in the book for, you know, no matter who you are in the world. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's not for a kid, but for a preteen, uh, definitely there. Yeah, it's not a sweary book or a sex book or something. I, I, think, I think I think it's just a really interesting you know, story where there's some big surprises in there. So I think she might enjoy it. All right. Excited. You were talking about, you know, your experiences like spacewalking,
0: whatnot. I was showing my daughter, Charlotte, your video of your spacewalk. And, and she just, I guess she hadn't seen it, but she was like, is that real? I'm like, yeah. She's like, space is really dark and scary is what she said. And I kind of thought that, you know, like, well, yeah, I guess it is. But was there anything that when you were up there that, you know, you prepare for every, every possibility. That's at least what I read. Was there anything that you were up there and you're like, huh, this was not what I expected?
1: You know, after my first space flight, Ted, which was to go help build the Russian space station Mir, uh, we were on a space shuttle Atlantis, and I was part of the flight crew, but also I was operating Canadarm, first Canadian to operate our big Canadarm, and building the Russian space station Mir. And it was brand new to go to a space station with a space shuttle and you know, we launched, we didn't even have a published flight plan on the day we launched. Everybody was scrambling with all the late changes. And I was thinking when we landed like eight or nine days later, because it was just a frantic sprint of a flight, that nothing went as planned. Nothing. Everything. Nothing? Was just this, nothing? Nothing as planned. Yeah, I mean, everything had little nuances that were like, wow, that was, but everything was somewhere within the scope of what we had trained for. You know, so it was like, okay, well, that didn't go like I expected, but I had enough depth of capability that between myself and the crew and then getting advice from Houston that we could deal with it. You know, we pulled up, we were 30 feet, 10 meters away from the Mir space station, first time ever docking this way, and our range sensors failed and gave us bad information. And so I had to, you know, grab my stopwatch. And then just visually go, <laughs> visually, okay, that's about one meter. So that's about uh, seven meters. So, okay, let's time it and see how long it takes to go one meter and then strapple it. Because we had to dock within a two-minute window at exactly the right speed and exactly on target. You know, we ended up just docking by purely eyeballing it. The whole mission went that way. But that's the beauty of preparation and training and not just, you know, trying to rely on good looks and you know luck. That's why... We are successful in space is because we visualize things going wrong, you know, sweating the small stuff, visualizing failure, and then practicing them when things are quiet. If you did do one podcast every seven years, you know, think how practiced you could get if you just simulated it hundreds of different ways until when it actually happens. Go on, I don't care what happens now. We get hit by lightning, you know, my microphone falls on the ground. The cement truck goes by. I got a plan. I'm going to be able to deal with this thing. And that's how we succeed in spaceflight. And that's what they all felt like. Spacewalk included, which is just a magical experience to be alone out in the universe, weightless with the three-dimensional kaleidoscope of the world beside you in all of its colors and textures, and then the eternity of the bottomless blackness of the universe around you and you out in the middle of that. You know, you can train all you want underwater and in virtual reality simulators, but none of it is going to even come close to, as your daughter noticed, the incredible, profound blackness of, of the universe. And the, the sun just hangs there like a weak little <laughs> light bulb in a football stadium. You know, it's bright, but compared to the universe, there's not much to it. And yet to be going around the world at eight kilometers a second and going through the Aurora while I was outside on a spacewalk you know, just a fantastic personal human experience and trying to soak it up well enough that I could incorporate it into who I am and try and maybe explain some version of it to other people. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing experience and you better spend a lot of time getting ready for it because otherwise it goes by so fast, you know, like Ferris Bueller that you're going to miss some stuff. How do you translate some of that?
0: Wisdom that you shared in the book to everyday life. Because I mean, I'm a fairly paranoid individual, the best of times. But I found that actually that was not great for my mental health. And I've actually had to learn to let things go because I always had these what if scenarios when we were buying our house or when we were doing a big business deal or, or doing different, you know, regular life things. I drive my wife and my friends mad about like, what if this and what if that, what if this, what if that. But it sounds like at least from your book, that's what you're advising people to do. Again, I haven't finished the book yet. So maybe you have something at the end there. But share with me, did you think about writing this book for 17 years and did Sims about it before? It doesn't sound like it. you said you'd done it for a year. I can't believe you finished a book in a year.
1: Well, writing writing a book is an iterative process and I constantly edit as I go. I don't know how people write a book longhand, you know, because I I am constantly shifting and editing every single, I try to write a thousand words a day. You know, it's not like I just write them and, and walk away. It's It's a carefully crafted thousand words each time because I'm constantly asking what if and reading it you know, every bit of dialogue, say it out loud in the voice of that person. Is this something they'd really say then? And would they say it this way? And what accent would they have? And what vocabulary would they choose? But I think to the situation you're describing there, Ted, you drive yourself crazy if all you do is visualize things going wrong. What you need to do is, what is the most likely thing to go wrong? Just pick that off the list, because there's always a million things can go wrong. Okay, what's the most likely thing to go wrong? And then, actually properly simulate it. You know, say, okay, so we buy the house and the very next day, one of the big banks in the US defaults and there's a big crunch and everything devalues. Okay, so that might happen. I don't know if that's the highest probability thing. Let's actually simulate that. What's that gonna look like to us? What is our decision making? Do we have the financial resources to be able to weather that? What will it affect my job? Will it affect these things? And actually, really, truly work your way through it, all the way through, simulate it. And if you get to the point where you realize, man, if that happens, then we are in an unsurvivable situation. Then you go back to the start and say, okay, we either need more skills or we need more resources or we can't make this financial decision. You know, you have to sort of back it up and work through. But once you've worked through and you've said, okay... If this happens, it's not what we want to happen. But if this happens, these are the things we're going to do. And this is how we're going to weather it. And one of us, you know, has a bad knee injury or something or a car gets wrecked or a family member dies. You know, Those things happen in life and just simulate them so that when they happen, you're not just caught flat footed. You weren't just crossing your fingers and hoping it was going to go OK. You weren't just worried. You'd actually figured out what you're going to do. When that happens and you added it to your skill set and then you can relax. And so when I say sweat the small stuff, I don't mean sit around and worry. What I mean is what is the probability of these things happening? Choose like, I don't know, you could go home tonight and and talk to your family and say, what are the three biggest threats to our existence right now? Like what if our building catches fire or whatever? One of us gets covid or or who knows Um, what are we going to do? And let's practice it. You know, when's the last time you had an actual fire drill in your house? And does everybody really need you know where the fire extinguishers are? Are there batteries in all your fire detectors? Just practice it once and probably blow it the first time you practice it. And then you go, okay, we didn't do it right. Let's learn from that. Let's run through it again. Let's practice it again. Okay, we'll practice it one more time. Now, everybody knows this is what a fire alarm sounds like. And like Charlotte, now she knows what it sounds like. And if you're lying in bed and you hear this noise in the middle of the night, you know what to do. You don't just lay there and scream in paddock, but you actually know what to do. You sleep better if you know what you're going to do when the inevitable happens and things go wrong. And so to me, that's the real key. Don't be a worrier, be a problem solver, have plans, simulate, use the quiet time to get good at the stuff that's going to happen in your life. And then when you're flying a spaceship up and everything's going wrong, you're like, yeah. God, I didn't want that to happen. But we thought of that 18 months ago and we practiced it 30 times and I know what I need to do next. Now we got to deal with that problem. OK. And to me, that's that's the way to go through life without just giving yourself ulcers and just worrying all the time and rubbing your beads or whistling past the graveyard or whatever it is you do. Actually, take the time to become good at your own life and then you can relax and enjoy the beautiful little nuances of your own life. All right. That's awesome. I wanted to figure out what's it like to be your kid, because I mean,
0: you know, I I imagine, you know, elite athletes live these crazy, super, you know, precise lives, but you've done all these things. I'm just thinking, what's it like to be your kid? That's basically my question.
1: (laughs) Well, I have three kids and a granddaughter. This morning, my granddaughter and I uh, did a whole bunch of things together. We were moving some gravel. And so we had a bunch of wheelbarrow time and we uh, had little garden tractor with trailer time. And we helped a neighbor with their power washer. And while we were going down to do the wheelbarrow job to move the gravel she asked grandpa to make up a story. So we made up a whole story. The first one was about uh, three little ducks that were threatened by a cat. And the second one was about a little girl in pink pants with two barrettes in her hair who uh, wanted to fly on a unicorn. So I think it's really important when you're raising kids to give them opportunity to you know, physically take care of them, give them you know, as much creature comfort as you can, to teach them things directly and indirectly to expand their mind, to give them a great education that never ends, and to try and be supportive of their dreams. And and a five-year-old, even though her world is different than mine, it's just as important and real to her as mine is to me. So honor it and respect it. With my kids, my wife and I have three kids, uh, two boys and a girl. They're all very different. They were born different. You know, everybody's wired different. Uh, All three are married. Uh, One is having trouble with their marriage, but that's pretty normal. They've all traveled extensively. All of them did an undergraduate degree in Canada and a graduate degree outside of the country. One of them works in advertising in China. One of them is a YouTuber and has his own series called Rare Earth. And he's the one who convinced me to do Space Oddity on the space station and helped me with social media during my third space flight. And then my daughter is a professor of psychology at uh, Trinity University in Dublin. So they're all very different in their life choices. I think if you ask them to be my child is kind of daunting and uh, a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit discouraging because if anybody meets one of my kids and they go, oh, wow, you're successful. Well, of course you're successful. You're, you know, an astronaut's kid. Or, hey, you're not successful. How come you're not successful? You're an astronaut's kid. They don't just get the slack. Like nobody judges me by what my dad does or did. So, why should they be judged by what their father does? And each one of them is treated it differently. I think that's why one of them moved to China, just so he could be out <laughs> underneath that shadow. The other, you know, he's a YouTuber, which is very different than what I've done. And then my daughter just kind of said, okay, I'm going to have my own set of credentials and I'm going to go be a professor. But at the same time, it's been quite enabling for them. They've, you know, met everybody, you know, royalty and politicians and movie stars, and they've traveled extensively and seen a lot of the world and been exposed to a lot of different things. So I think it's given them a lot of opportunity. So, uh, you know, and there's no control group. I didn't have children that, you know, weren't exposed to me being an astronaut. You didn't have a simulator. That. <laughs> no, a so so uh, I think, like any child, you have to put up with your parents with their strengths and their weaknesses and you have to deal with your own wiring and your own capabilities and your own dreams in life. And hopefully as a parent, I can, you know, be a voice in my kids' heads when I'm not there so that they can hear some external reason to what they're doing. But at the same time, all I really want is for them to be happy and successful pursuing the things that are important to them, you know, and nobody else's life is as good as it looks. Everybody's got internal family troubles. That's just normal. And each of us just does our best as a parent and now as a grandparent. That's awesome.
0: Okay. Wanted to ask you about Mars. So you're, you know, SpaceX, X Prize, Virgin Galactic, all these great, you know, things of tomorrow.
1: Today, today. things today.
0: All I guess, today. I guess, I guess so. But I mean, if asked, would you go? Would you go to Mars?
1: Well, astronauts don't just go right. We go in, we operate, we command, we fly, we develop, we invent, you know, we invent spaceflight to make it happen. So, you know, it's not like we're just, you know, jumping on a a bareback horse and and, (laughs) hang on. Um, So it'd be sort of like if someone said to you, hey, in, in 11 years. We're going to launch the first mission to Mars and we have to develop the ship and all of the interfaces. And there's all sorts of safety concerns, all sorts of things we don't know about yet. It's going to be a huge amount of work for the next decade. Are you interested? You know, to me, that's the real thrill, not just, you know, getting on and going somewhere. It's like if someone said, hey, I got a helicopter. It's going to the top of Mount Everest. It's leaving in three minutes. Want to go? You're like, well, okay, you jump in this helicopter, you're at the top of Everest, and then, you know, an hour later, you're back. Did you really climb Mount Everest? Yeah, You know, maybe you got a brief taste of what it's like up there at 29,000 feet, but you didn't climb Everest, and you missed almost the whole experience. So going to Mars, it's way harder than everybody thinks. Mars is far further away than most people imagine. The trip between here and Mars, it's the difference between swimming across a little river and swimming across the Pacific, you know, they're both swimming, but they don't even hold a candle to each other. And we don't even know what all the risks are. But Mars is quite alluring because it has an atmosphere and it has a lot of water and it may have ancient life. We don't know that that answer yet. So, you know, that's really worth going to. But for now, our rocket ships are really primitive. You know, it's like trying to take a canoe to Australia. You know, you're hmm. pretty sure to die along the way you know? <laughs> and, and that's where we are with our, our rocket technology right now Mars is very difficult it, we can send robots most of the time and we're getting better at that now but I think we'll send robots for a generation or so we need to start settling the moon first where it's only three days away so if you get it wrong everybody doesn't die so I think we'll be sending people back to the moon here shortly, but actually starting to stay to set up permanent human settlements on the moon, just like we did in various places throughout history all around the world. And because our technology is good enough now. And from that, then we'll learn all of the lessons that we need, or maybe just enough of them to be able to safely start sending people to Mars. And it's got to fit in with everything else we're doing, right? Right now, it's ridiculously expensive to send people to Mars. Why would we do it? Mm. When robots can do it, you know, you have to make the technology good enough and safe enough that the price comes down low enough that it becomes something practical to do. You know, and we're not at that stage yet either. And there's no great urgency to get people to Mars. But once it becomes cheap and safe enough, then it'll make sense. So sort of like flying or going to Antarctica or something. So, yeah, eventually. And I I, basically I've been working on it my whole life. All of the work Mm. that I've done. The, the work that I did serving as an engineer and then as an astronaut, that was to help develop all of the technologies and the reliability and the structures and the international agreements and, and everything else we're going to need to successfully start living on other planets. And it's what I'm still actively involved in now. So, yeah, I'd love to, but, it, but it, not for a joyride. <laughs> That's, that is a well
0: thought out answer. Okay, you ready for some rapid fire? gonna ask you a bunch of questions okay i'm ready okay star wars star trek the expanse blade runner 2001 2001 favorite tune to sing on a warm summer evening big list soldier in the oak my daughter wanted to know what's your favorite dish that you had in space dehydrated shrimp cocktail dehydrated shrimp cocktail
1: yeah it's got really really strong horseradish out know, the cocktail sauce and you're always congested in space because there's no gravity to drain your sinuses so something with a really sharp biting you know sinus clearing flavor that's nice to get in space something that makes your eyes water a little bit and the horseradish and the shrimp cocktail does that so and shrimp freezes and then and then rehydrates pretty well you know so it's dehydrated. the same
0: texture. It's yeah, not like we're, yeah. you're not
1: thinking about the Chinese, yeah. It you doesn't know, dehydrated. You get you get that no. nice texture. So so yeah, dehydrated shrimp cocktail, rehydrated shrimp cocktail. Favorite spot on the ISS, the cupola, the huge bulging window where you could float in there. Where not only was there a meter wide window facing the Earth, but there were windows around so you could look forwards and look sideways and look where you've just been, as well as looking straight down at the world. Cupola. Cupola. Favorite word in Russian? Favorite word in Russian? Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I mean, I speak Russian. So, what's my favorite word in English? I don't know. I, I speak, I know them all. Uh, my favorite word in Russian? Zafra.
0: What does that mean? Tomorrow. That's awesome. Any embarrassing moment you had as an astronaut that was funny and you'd be willing to share?
2: Let's see.
1: Oh, uh, on my second space flight, my first space flight, I flew with a guy named Ken Cameron. He was the commander of the shuttle, Ken Cameron. My second space flight, I flew with Kent Rominger. And we were talking to, I don't know, ABC News or one of the big American news outlets. And we're there inside the space station. I've got Kent Rominger right next to me, goes by Rommel, was his Navy call sign. And I'd been calling him Rommel, his Navy call sign, For 15 years, because I knew him in the Navy when we were test pilots together and suddenly we're on, you know, ABC News or whatever it was. And I'm going, I can't call him Rommel. And I couldn't remember his name because I'd called him Rommel, you know, his nickname for years. And so somehow my brain, as I was talking, dredged around and popped out and it said, Ken Cameron. And right here next to me is Ken Cameron, the commander of my previous spaceship. I'm like, I don't know the name of the guy that I'm flying in space with that I've known for 15 years. And he just looked at me like I was an idiot. (laughs) I was an idiot. I was like, God, brain, normally you don't let me down. But why did you just do that to me anyway? So, yeah, that that was stupid and public and embarrassing. (laughs) All right. Nickname. What's your nickname? I don't have a Nickname. There's a real popular media thing. I think it got popular, especially during Tom Cruise's movie Top Gun that like all pilots have a call sign and a nickname in the Canadian Air Force. You only got a call sign when you screwed up, like like your name might be breaks or thumper if you messed up a landing or, you know, some nickname like that, or maybe a play like one of my best friends was a guy named Tristan DeConnick. And his last name was DeConnick, you know, and that's a complicated enough name that we just called him Deke because it was easier, you know. But in my case, you know, it didn't screw up publicly enough that, that I ever uh, got myself a call sign. So, no, I've just always gone by my name. Favorite junk food? Uh, sure, of course. On board a spaceship, favorite junk food, chocolate. Chocolate. We actually keep a chocolate wall on the space station. Wow. because. Chocolate. Have you ever seen chocolate go bad? Chocolate seems to last forever. And so there's no tables up there because there's no gravity. So we would just, you know, in our food, there'd always be some hard, bitter chocolate and some milk chocolate and whatever. And we would just have it velcroed to the wall, like eight different types of chocolate because you're so busy. You're working 16 hours a day. There's often not time to get a full meal. And it's really nice to be racing by just break off a piece of chocolate and pop it in your mouth and get a little energy for a while. So on board the spaceship it was really nice having a chocolate wall. Darker milk. I grew up liking milk chocolate but as an adult I prefer dark.
0: Me too. Best book other than yours that you would recommend to read. About what? Anything. I mean, you know you seem to know everything. Anything? So just anything. A uh, book that you would read over and over again that you would
1: recommend. You should read this, Ted. Well, there's there's multiple series that I've read. There's a group called The World in Data, and um, the fellow who was the progenitor of that and who started it, who spoke it, Ted, he wrote a book. Oh, I'm not going to. Uh, it's a useless recommendation. I can't remember the name, but um, a superb book on sort of the reality of the world and all of the numbers, the difference between your perception of the world and the reality of the world and how your own biases affect your decision making and your your sort of inherent inaccuracies and decisions Anyway, if I if I remember it, I'll let you know. Um, it's written by a Swede, a guy who grew up as a doctor. But uh, but there are several series of books that I go back and read on a regular basis just because I, I love how they're written. I love reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and how he wrote. I love Arthur Conan Doyle. I read the George MacDonald series fairly often. I like, you know, some current stuff. I like the way that Jonathan Kellerman writes. And I have a lot of fun reading the Reacher series, uh, the Jack Reacher series, and Um, I'm currently reading Mark Carney's book, which is called values kind of on where do our values come from and how do we manifest them both, not just economically, but as a society and how do those two intertwine with each other to me that, you know, you should always be reading at least one book just to, to to challenge your own thoughts and beliefs or to learn something deliberately. And I'm part of a reading group right now. And we're the theme of the reading group is human machine. And so we read Frankenstein and, and we've read a thing called machine hood and, and a fiction book about a future where robots or bots are so much more prevalent. So this was supposed to be a short answer, but, but it wasn't. If you're into graphic
0: novels, classic is ghost in the shell. I wrote a paper on that once upon a time. I'll have a look. Yeah. It's uh, it's anime, but it's uh, it talks about robots and the souls and all that kind of stuff. Really great. One thing you wished everyone could learn to help
1: them and their community? You know, I put it under the category of citizenship and just being a good neighbor. But if there was one thing to do, I would say always leave everything that you interact with slightly better than you found it. Always, you know, if you go for a walk, pick up trash. If you see something that needs a little bit of help or someone that needs a little bit of help, help them. Whenever you interact with people or with nature or whatever, just try and deliberately leave it a little better than you found it. And I think if everybody does that, it, it builds a better community. Wow.
0: You are one of my heroes. And I was very, very grateful to have had this opportunity to interview you, Colonel. Do I call you Colonel,
1: Chris? We Mr. do, High and King? I got the name of the book. The book is called Factfulness. 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 Everybody should read factfulness. And um, my wife and I met each other in high school and uh, she was in the other room and she heard my voice and she looked it up and came in and cued me. So not only should you read factfulness, but if you possibly can, find someone that you love, that believes in you and that you believe in and support each other for your whole life. And maybe that's another way to be a a productive citizen. Yes, sir.
0: All right. So Apollo Murders comes out October 12th. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm going to pre-order this after this call. And Chris, it was a, a super pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. And people can reach out in, on
1: chrishadfield.ca. I think that's where everything is. Yeah, chrishadfield.ca slash books. We'll get you to the Apollo murders and the other books I've written. Um, and yeah, there's there's a YouTube channel and all the social media and everything. But yeah, chrishadfield.ca. Thanks very much, Ted. Been been a joy to talk to you. And I'm really pleased that your daughter remembers me joining her classroom and and I hope she enjoys, uh, you know, sort of going through astronauts guides idea with you and maybe some of the thrilling action scenes in the Apollo murders with you. Maybe so. And
0: we're going to try that dehydrated shrimp cocktail if we can get our hands on it. <laughs> all right. <great. laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. It was super honor. Wish you all the best. Uh, I'm going to uh, buy that book now. Okay.
1: Thanks for listening to Marketing
0: News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers,
3: visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors Travis Jeffers and the Podfather.